Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome into episode six of the Landscape Photography Show with my good friend today, Ian Plant. And I've had Ian Plant on other podcasts that I've done before, and I've, I've talked to him a lot in the past. And I will say, Ian is like one of my favorite interviews because he's so quick on his feet and he's so fast with his answers. It's almost challenging to me to interview him and get answers out of him. Ian is also one of the nicest people that I've ever interacted with. And I honestly owe like my entire photography career to him. He's one of the first people that gave me a chance for writing for him. He's introduced me to tons of people in the photography community. So I was really excited to get him on the podcast today. And we talk about some different things in landscape photography. Number one, we talk about drones and how they allow us to get different perspectives of a landscape. We also talk about the traumatic event that Ian had when he took a drone to the face and wound up with just a couple of scratches. And lastly, we will talk a little bit about some different things that Ian's been working on, namely his new venture called Shutter Monkeys that I think you guys are really gonna like. And speaking of Shutter Monkeys, we're gonna be talking a lot about the resources that you can find around that. If you want to find those resources, you can go to today's show notes at davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash plant, and you're gonna find all those resources there to easily get your hands on Shutter Monkey's content. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. We're joined by professional photographer Ian Plant, and if you listen to my podcast that I used to have, I had Ian on a few different times just because of the insight that he had on photography and just kind of like the travels that he had and the interesting stuff he was doing with photography. So I'm really excited to welcome Ian back on my new podcast. So what's up, Ian? Oh, hey, man. It's great to be back, uh, though I guess if it's a new podcast, I'm not technically coming back. But it's great to be talking with you again. Cool. Now, okay, you recently crashed your drone into your face. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Personally, I look at it more kind of like through the lens of a rise of the machines type of scenario. <laughs> uh, very Terminator-esque. Uh, so, yeah, I was in Greenland. I, I've been doing some recent travel, and uh, I was in Greenland for two and a half weeks photographing icebergs. Uh, and uh, I was there with Erez Marome, a good friend of mine and colleague, and we were using a small motorboat to travel around to find the best, most interesting icebergs to photograph. And then more often than not, we were launching our drones from the boat so that we could find the best angles to photograph those icebergs. And the boat was pretty small, and sometimes the conditions might be a little breezy. There might be some uh, wave action. So launching and landing from the boat could often be a pretty difficult thing. And Greenland is also notorious for interference with GPS and uh, remote control signal. So there was a lot of problems with navigating the drones as well. And we had a lot of epic drone fails during that trip, though neither of us actually lost our drones. Uh, we just came very, very close to 
almost losing our drones a number of times. And in this particular instance, I was launching my drone from the front of the boat and I was launching it by hand. So I had the drone in one hand and the remote controller in the other hand. And I turn on the drone with the remote controller and send it up. Uh, except when I did that, this breeze blew the drone right into my face. So, I, you know, when I was going, <laughs> the drone was probably only about two or three feet away from my face to begin with. And so it didn't take much of a breeze to push the uh, drone into my face. And the propellers hit me once and then hit me again. Uh, I reached up with my hand to grab the drone to, to wrestle it away from my face. Uh, and then the propellers were digging into my hand. And uh, the end result was the drone was fine. Uh, but I was left rather battered and bloodied, like I had just walked out of the middle of a plastic surgery session or something like that. Did you have to get any stitches? Uh, no, I decided that being a real man, I wasn't going to go to the hospital and get stitches or anything like that. Actually, the cuts weren't really that deep. So, um, uh, you know, after spending the night whimpering in pain, uh, I uh, woke up the next morning and the bleeding had stopped. And uh, it was really not as bad as I, as it looked when I, when it first happened, no stitches required. It was a pretty shallow cut. I hear crazy glue is a great replacement for stitches. If you don't want to spend the money. <laughs> well, I should be traveling with crazy glue from now on just for that, just in case I have another drone mishap. I, so, I think what happened is that the drone was angry with me because I was flying it into all these dangerous locations where, you know, an iceberg could potentially collapse or something like that. And so it was getting back at me. Yeah, it probably was. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you is when you go to Greenland, I feel like it's kind of getting hot right now in landscape photography. When you go there, what, what does it kind of look like? What can you expect to see? So um, Greenland, this was my first trip to Greenland, and I didn't quite know what to expect. I just, I kind of expected lots and lots of ice and lots of lots, lots and lots of mountains. And there were some areas that had a lot of really nice mountains, but there are also large portions of Greenland that were relatively flat because the glaciers have just basically carved off all the rock. Mm -hmm. So it was a little different than I expected. And I actually spent uh, the vast majority of my time on the water looking for icebergs drifting around. And depending on where you were, you either had a really scenic background if you were in one of those areas with those nice mountains nearby, uh, or you really didn't have a background at all. The iceberg was your subject. It was really the only thing to photograph. The, you know, the landforms were interesting. When you get out into Disco Bay, for example, which is this enormous bay, and you might go uh, 10 or 15 miles to find a really interesting iceberg, uh, there's really nothing else around you. There's there's no scenery, there's no terrain. There might be some land in the distance that you see, but there's nothing sticking up. So your subject is pretty much entirely the iceberg itself uh, and whatever sunrise or sunset sky you have in the background. Do your guides, like the people driving the boats, do they kind of have a good knowledge of where those icebergs are? Do they move around so much that you kind of just have to go out there blindly? You just kind of have to go out there blindly. They do move around quite a bit. Uh, there was one time where we saw a really cool iceberg one day and we went out looking for it the next day and we did find it, but it probably had drifted about five or 10 miles in one day. So it took a little bit of exploring to actually go and find it again. So for the most part, what we would do is we'd go out in the water and we would just look around. And if we saw 
an iceberg in the distance as we were cruising around that looked like it might have an interesting shape, we would head towards it. And sometimes we'd take out a pair of binoculars to zoom in and see these distant bergs. And what we were looking for was icebergs that had more verticality than being horizontal. Like we avoided the ones that just looked like flat horizontal slabs. We were looking for the ones that were sticking up higher in the air that had maybe interesting towers. Uh, Or we were especially looking for icebergs that had really big arches. So what would happen is that the seawater would melt uh, part of the iceberg and eventually a natural arch would form. And sometimes we found some arches that were just uh, stupendously large. And it was really amazing photographing these massive icebergs with these beautiful natural arches. So we actually got pretty lucky. We probably photographed, I would say, somewhere between 15 and 20 icebergs with arches in a two-week period. We just kept finding them like left and right. Everywhere we went, there was an iceberg with an arch. So it was a really productive trip. Wow. How long were you staying out there in the bay? So uh, at the beginning of the trip, it was pretty much the midnight sun. So I think the first day that we went out on the water there, uh, the sun didn't really set or maybe it briefly set behind the mountains. It didn't really uh, officially set that day. And so for those first few days during the midnight sun, we would basically just stay out during that whole midnight sun period. So it'd be sunset to sunrise. So typically four or five hours catching that that beautiful magical hour period that lasted so long because we were so far north during the summer towards the end of the trip uh we would have actual sunset and sunrise and i think by the end the separation between the two was maybe four or five hours long so staying out for both sunset and sunrise would involve six to eight hours of sailing around and so we typically weren't doing that so towards the end we might go out for four hours or so and just focus on sunset or just focus on sunrise. Now, when you're out there using a drone and photographing these icebergs, like compositionally, what's different about shooting from a, from a drone perspective versus shooting from the surface of the water just on the boat? I would say that with the drone, your compositional opportunities open up to become almost infinite. When you're on the boat, The boat is great because you can circle around an iceberg and you can get closer or farther away as the scene requires, though there's limits to how close you can actually get to an iceberg because it gets very unsafe because the icebergs might have a partial collapse of ice or they might spontaneously flip over uh, and you don't want to be anywhere near an iceberg when that happens. Uh, And so being on the water is actually better than being on the land in many ways because you've got more variety in the positions you can get, but you're limited to that basically water level perspective. So with the drone, not only can you circle around the entire iceberg, but you can fly higher and that opens up all sorts of different compositional opportunities. So composition is the same no matter where you're shooting from. It's just that when you're flying the drone in the air, you have different opportunities that you can get if you have a land-based or a water-based perspective. The other uh, challenge with the drone, the one thing that makes composition a little bit different is that the drone has a fixed focal length on the uh, the lens. So that's, that's limiting you to certain perspectives that are going to work with that focal length. So, you know, for example, if I'm 
shooting from the land, you know, shooting a land-based object, I might choose to go for a super wide angle perspective. And that means getting a lot closer to my subject, both the background and the foreground, so that I can get everything in that with that wide angle perspective. So it's a much different perspective than I might have if I choose to stand farther back and shoot with a longer lens. With a drone, you don't really have that flexibility. Do you think now a lot of photographers, myself included, have have adapted drone photography into kind of like their workflow and and finding the best image where it's legal to fly? Some people haven't really bought into that yet. Do you see kind of like having a drone in your bag or taking one with you as kind of an integral part to your workflow in the field? Yeah, it's funny because I was skeptical at first. And I remember when I got my first drone. Uh, I never used it. I couldn't really figure out how to incorporate it into my workflow. It seemed more like a gimmick to me. But then when I started actually making an effort to use it more and I realized the full potential of the drone, it became indispensable to me. And now, you know, sometimes I'll hang out with some uh, photo friends and colleagues who will laugh at me because they see me taking nothing but drone photographs. And they're like, why did you even bring a tripod? You're not shooting from the land anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you know, in some places it's certainly taken over. There are obviously a lot of places where you can't fly a drone. So land-based photography is still the only way to go. And I think it really depends on the scene or the subject. There are certain places that just seem made for drone photography because there's so much interesting landforms that are revealed from the higher perspective. But there's a lot of places where I wouldn't want to use the drone because I just don't think it's the the right tool for the job. So it really depends on where I go. But yeah, I would say that the drone has kind of taken over uh, with my photography in the past year. I've probably taken at least 50% of the photos that I've shot in the past year have been with the drone. Yeah, I think it almost becomes uh, an extra lens in your bag or an extra tool that you can use. Like there have been several moments I know where I've been in an area where I couldn't get to a place or where I thought, you know, if only I could get five, six feet higher off the ground and it would be perfect. And I think drones really are are priceless in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you just said is absolutely right. A lot of times when I'm on the land, I feel like, you know, I'm limited by how tall I can stand or how high I can get my tripod up. And, you know, a lot of people using their drones are flying up high and looking straight down. And that's certainly an option. But I found that by treating my drone more like my land-based landscape camera, that I can get some really interesting shots. And quite often, the perspective I'm getting isn't that far removed from a land-based perspective, but it's that extra 10 feet, as you said earlier, that can often make all the difference. Yeah. I'm going through and I'm looking at your website right now and and the portfolio that you have. And I'm looking at some of my favorite images that you've shot. Number one being the cheetah silhouetted that's climbing the tree. It looks like it's at sunset. Uh, There's a Maasai warrior uh, against the Milky Way over their head. And then you have like fjords in Iceland with the Aurora kind of in a halo shape over it. In these situations that you're going out and shooting, how do you predict kind of like serendipitous moments versus predicted shots that you get? What's what's the balance there? Yeah, you know, that's that's a really great question. And I, I get that question a lot when I'm uh, leading workshops. And um, I'm a big fan of of planning. I think planning and research is really important when you're doing outdoor photography. 
And I think a component that the planning is looking for amazing subjects and locations to photograph, uh, going out there and finding the compositions that are going to work. And there's a lot of planning involved with the the weather and the light. But uh, honestly, I've always been more of a flyby, the seat of my pants type of shooter. And I like just immersing myself in a location or with a subject and letting, as you, as you said, serendipity play in a very strong role, <clears throat> excuse me, serendipity playing a very strong role. And I think that it is important to be flexible and it's important to learn how to react to changing conditions, no matter what you're photographing, certainly with wildlife and with travel photography. Uh, there's not a lot of planning you can necessarily do. Quite often, you are at the mercy of the random behavior of your subjects. Uh, and I also think that this is true with landscape photography. So much of a good landscape photo is what's going on in the sky, what's happening with the clouds and the light at sunrise or sunset. And you can't really plan for that. You can't really scout out the sky composition. You can scout out the landform composition, but you can't really know for sure what's going to happen with the sky. So you have to be able to react and adjust and change what you're doing when the clouds create certain shapes or the color happens to be in one part of the sky and not the part of the sky that you had planned as part of your brilliant composition. So being able to very quickly change your strategy and to stitch together a really good composition on the fly are incredibly important to any kind of photography. Does that take time to develop? Absolutely. I mean, it's not something that you can just uh, just go out and do. I mean, it, it really requires a lot of practice and a lot of getting out there and just trying, no matter where you are, uh, to make good photographs and to react to things. You know, this is one of those things where you can't just, uh, you have to learn how to crawl or walk. Uh, you can't just fly into flying. So this is something that takes a lot of practice. What what gets you most excited in photography? Obviously you've shot all around the world and taken hundreds of photos, but what's that thing that really just gets you stoked about photography? It's when the unexpected happens. Uh, when something random uh, comes together in a completely unexpected way. And it could, it could be, you know, getting that, that amazing sunset, the best sunset you've seen all year, or it could be, you know, that cheetah jumping up on the tree with a beautiful sunrise in the background. It's just those serendipitous moments. Uh, and being there and being able to record those moments is what I live for. When, when did you kind of see your style start to take form? I, I mean, everybody has their own type of shooting that they do, whether it's complex or simplistic or a lot of color or not. Yours specifically, when did you start to see that happen? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I've, I've always tried to have my own style. Like I, I purposely don't look at the work of most other photographers uh, because I, you know, I think as soon as you see someone else doing something that you like, you uh, want to own that moment yourself. You want to take that sort of photograph. It's human nature. Uh, and uh, we, I mean, we all covet. So uh, I think that I've worked very hard to insulate myself from what other people are doing so that my own personal style can emerge. And I, you know, I've been really trying to do that for a long time now. I think probably as long as I've been a professional photographer, about 15 years, I've been trying to 
create my own personal style. And I'm not exactly sure what that personal style is. I mean, it's a bit of a, a hodgepodge. I've, I've been kind of a jack of all trades. Uh, you know, I used to specialize just in landscapes and then I branched out to other types of photography. I mean, like seven years ago, I never would have even considered taking a photograph that had a person in it. Uh, even like the barest hint of the hand of man, if there was a small structure in the background, I, I would avoid those compositions. And now I fully embrace that type of thing. Uh, so I think that, you know, the style, my style that has emerged is not really a style. It's just kind of a philosophy of being open-minded to the possibilities and just reacting to these random convergences when the random forces of nature come together to form a pleasing uh, composition to tell an interesting story, being ready to capture those moments and to be flexible and open-minded about those moments. I think that's really what I'm striving for. Is that when you started to shoot more uh, travel photography? Yeah, probably. I would say about seven or eight years ago, I started to open my mind to some other things. Maybe 10 years ago, I, I started doing more wildlife. And I think that was the first step in that journey. And I, I do believe strongly in, in avoiding becoming a specialist, because I think you become a better artist when you cross over into other genres, when you push yourself when you force yourself to see things in a different way, that's when you really learn and grow as an artist. And I think that if you look at all types of art forms, often it's the crossover artists that are doing the most interesting work, whether it's music or whether it's uh, you know, photography. So I do believe that you'll get better if you push yourself into doing things that really aren't your cup of tea. I just want to pause real quick and talk to you about today's sponsor, and that is Visual Wilderness, a place where you can go to find tons of resources and learn how you can become a better photographer. I'm a contributor to that site, and right now for a limited time, you can get my post-processing tutorial courses for 33% off if you use the code DAVID33. Hey, if you want to easily find links to those, you can go to today's show notes at davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash plant and access those easily. Plus all the links from today's episode and things that we are talking about that you're listening to right now. Speaking of listening to right now, let's get back to the show. Oh, one real quick thing. Remember, if you want any of the Shutter Monkeys content, you can also find that in today's show notes, davidjohnsonart.com slash podcast slash plant. All right, let's keep listening. Now, I remember in, in one of our previous chats that we've had over the years, you were shooting uh, film pretty early on, correct? That is correct. Uh, before I turned pro, I shot film for about 10 years. What what was your workflow like, like, if any, differently from that to what you're shooting now with digital and drone? Well, so I guess the workflow in the days of film was entirely a field workflow. And there wasn't any post-processing at the time. If you were a nature photographer, whether it was landscape or wildlife, you were shooting with uh, a slide film, color slide film. And most of us were using Fujichrome Velvia or something like that. And uh, there was no post-processing. You got your film 
Uh, when you were done with a trip, you would put it in a mailer, you would send it to a lab, it would come back a week later or two weeks later, and you'd have your processed images. And so there was none of this uh, digital darkroom manipulation or anything going on. So the entire workflow was leading up to that moment where you triggered the, the shutter button. That was what a photograph was, is when you, when you press the trigger, uh, you created a photograph and there was nothing really else in the process where you could be creative. And that, of course, has all changed now that we're shooting digital raw files. You know, the raw file isn't meant to be the final product. Uh, in a way, uh, neither was the film you were shooting. It had to be fixed and processed by a lab to emerge as a final product. Uh, so it's the same thing with a raw file. But now there's a lot more creativity that can go in on the processing side. And of course, we've changed the way we shoot to accommodate the fact that we're shooting with digital files. So, you know, the most basic example of this is the way we expose uh, our digital files because underexposed digital files tend to be more noisy. Uh, if we want clean files, we all do what, you know, is known as shooting to the right, pushing the histogram to the right side of the graph as much as possible without overexposing our highlights. And as a result, the raw files often look kind of washed out. They, they look too bright. So we have to adjust our whole workflow in the field to accommodate the fact that we know we're going to make adjustments in the processing phase to make the file look the way that we want it to. And of course, now there's exposure blending and focus stacking and other digital processes that replicate what was uh, used to be done in the field. And uh, as a result, uh, my entire workflow, my, my whole philosophy in the field has changed a bit knowing that I'm going to do these adjustments later on on the computer. But one thing I haven't done is I haven't embraced this philosophy of extreme digital manipulation. This is something that's become very common in landscape photography in particular, where you have uh, folks who are basically compositing elements from multiple photographs. They're taking their favorite sky that they might have shot like three years ago and putting it into a landscape that they shot a week before. And they're doing all sorts of aggressive warping of uh, the size of objects, making the mountains in the background look twice as tall as they really were to the eye, you know, that sort of thing. There's really a lot of aggressive uh, manipulation going on. And the result is probably more photo art than it is a real photograph, or at least what I would think of as a photograph. And I haven't embraced this. The My digital workflow tends to be uh, rather simple and is focused on, you know, maybe some uh, adjustments to brightness or darkness in local areas. Uh, so my workflow is probably pretty similar to the uh, darkroom process that Ansel Adams might have had, for example. So it's not really aggressively manipulating the image to make it look into something different than what it really was. It's really more of a subtle optimization of the digital file. Yeah. And that transition has always been something that fascinates me. It, did it take you a little while to kind of embrace the digital darkroom once you switched over? Absolutely. I mean, I remember the first digital photos I was taking, they were all underexposed because I was used to slightly underexposing the Fujichrome Velvia film that I was using because it would make the final image look uh, better and make the colors look more saturated. So I was, I was shooting for about a year with digital the same way I would shoot with film. And it took me a while to break free of those constraints. Tell me about Shutter Monkeys. This is, this is a new project you have, but I know personally it's it's been in the works for you for a really long time. So so what is it, and and kind of what's your goal with Shutter Monkeys? 
Yeah, so Shutter Monkeys has, has been around in like concept stage for probably about eight or ten years. And I've uh, kind of shopped this around to a few photographers I've known throughout the years, but it's never really taken off. And, you know, the first concept of Shutter Monkeys, it was really just an interesting name. Uh, I was talking with another photographer, a really good friend of mine, Joe Rossback, uh, about maybe doing some video. And we were thinking about having some sort of like reality TV show about photography. And I, th if I recall, we actually filmed, uh, we did some filming in Great Smoky Mountains National Park about eight or nine years ago, but we quickly realized that we didn't know anything about video. So <laughs> just, it never got off the ground. And, you know, the name was just something that um, uh, we were just kicking around a few ideas. And uh, I don't know, I think we were thinking of Shutter Geeks and then we, you know, threw out Shutter Monkeys. I can't remember exactly uh, how it all happened, but the name, you know, really stuck with me. And uh, I, I really kind of loved it as a brand name for a photography education business. And I just never quite knew what to do with it. And throughout the years, I talked with a few folks about it, uh, kind of kicked around a few ideas. It never went anywhere. And then about a year ago, I uh, decided that I wanted to launch a new photo brand. I had been involved in some previous photo brands of my own. Uh, then I had experimented with outsourcing. I was working with a company that ran Outdoor Photography Guide. Uh, and so I, I kind of experimented with outsourcing the photo branding to them so that I was just doing the photography and creating the content. I was no longer running the business. Um, and that went on for about three years. And I, I decided that I needed to get back into being in the business of photography, that I had to actually run my own business. So the experiment didn't really work out the way I, I wanted it to. Uh, and so I decided, all right, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to finally launch this brand Shutter Monkeys. And, uh, the idea of Shutter Monkeys, and, and this is something that I'm working with, uh, my good friend, Zach Mills, another professional photographer who lives in Canada. Uh, he, uh, came in as a partner in this business and the idea behind Shutter Monkeys, it's still very much, uh, all about that video experience that Joe and I were kind of kicking around 10 years ago. And I'm hoping at some point soon that we'll get Joe into one of our videos uh, so that we can bring that whole thing full circle. But I think that's still the core idea is bringing that that live TV, that reality TV video experience to the viewers. So it is focused on our adventures in the field. So the adventures of me and some of the other photographers that I travel with. So recently, because I was traveling with Eris Marone in Greenland and also in Argentina before that to photograph the solar eclipse, uh, he and I filmed videos while we were down there. So you can see those on the Shutter Monkey site. Some of the older videos that we filmed were me and Zach. I'm going to be up in the Canadian uh, Rockies sometime soon, hanging out with Zach, and we're going to probably film a video while we're there. Uh, and so that really is still at the core. So these videos are part educational for photographers, but it's really more about the experience of being out there, you know, showing us in the field, showing all the crazy things that we have to do to make the photos that we make. And that's at the core of it. And around that core, we're building an entire educational experience. So the website also has a community photo sharing space, you know, a forum for people to post photos and to trade ideas, to ask and answer questions. Uh, and of course, we're doing a lot of instructional videos and uh, eBooks that are for sale. So we're building this, this community educational experience around this vicarious photo adventure video core. Now, there are difficulties in filming and shooting in the field at the same time. Have you encountered any of those? 
<laughs> Absolutely. It's a real challenge. It is most challenging when you're shooting on your own. If you've got someone else, uh, things become a lot easier. You can trade off the video uh, responsibilities. But the biggest challenge is that you are focusing so much time and energy on making the photographs. I mean, that's why you're there. So you have to spend a lot of time scouting, traveling to locations, preparing for uh, your photo shoots. And that takes up a lot of energy and you don't want to take away from that. I mean, I think the key thing when we're photographing, uh, you know, when we're out there and we're making a video of this experience is that we're actually making great photos. We're actually showing the real experience to the viewers. So we have to shoot the video around everything else that's going on. So that means a lot of times when you're in the moment, uh, the video is not rolling. You know, for example, in Greenland, when the drone attacked my face, uh, mm -hmm. we didn't have any video rolling. So we didn't have the experience on film. It would have been great to have captured that on film. Right. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, we were busy making photographs at the time. So the key thing that I'm trying to incorporate into our video experience now is bringing along a professional film crew, turning this into pretty much a real reality TV show style uh, video event. So that's what we're trying to do right now. And I'm hoping that we'll get that online pretty soon. And you recently released a kind of like a landscape photography video guide on your own, correct? Yes. Uh, through Shutter Monkeys, I filmed a video instruction course for landscape photography. So it's got three hours plus of field and digital processing video instruction, as well as a 120 page ebook, and then uh, lots of uh, uh, bonus items that have been added on to extend and enhance the learning experience. So it's really kind of a suite of related products that are all designed to help people become the best landscape photographers that they can become. Now, when you're going out and you're filming all of this stuff, you're shooting your photos, you're trying to incorporate video into it. What, what's one of the most difficult things about traveling constantly, it seems like, and then producing content and photos on your own? Uh, well, I never take a vacation. I mean, right. literally, I never take any time off. I think that in the past year, I probably can count the number of days that I have taken off on one hand. And even on those days where I'm not doing much work, I'm still doing some work. So when I travel, uh, I'm, I'm very focused on the photography, but whenever I've got free time, I try to do the work that I need to do to keep my business running. And when I'm home, uh, I spend all of that time basically um, uh, working on the content, getting the videos done, getting the blog posts up, uh, working on the next course or something like that. You know, so basically my wife goes to the gym for three hours in the morning on a Saturday. I work those three hours and I find a way to be productive whenever I can, uh, all while still maintaining my marriage, which is really difficult when you're traveling and working all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to call you a workaholic is kind of an understatement. Uh, yeah, I suppose. But the way I look at it is I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And when you love what you do, then it doesn't really feel like work. So yeah, I work nonstop, uh, but it is, it's more than a hobby. It's more than a profession. It's more than a lifestyle. It's just who I am. And in a way, when I'm traveling, even though when I'm out in the field making photographs, it's a lot of hard work. And I come back from those trips physically and mentally exhausted. In a way, those are my vacations. 
because it's doing what I love most in the world. I love that, man. I love that. And I feel the same way when I come back from a long trip too, is just so drained, but at the same time, so gracious and full of joy about everything I just experienced. You're preaching to the choir, brother. <laughs> <laughs> now what you're doing with Shutter Monkeys, with a lot of video intertwined into it and, and the business side, is that kind of one of the avenues that you see photography going with business for professional photographers who are listening in and, and kind of slow to join the video movement? Um, well, I, I definitely think that there are more photographers getting involved with doing video. Of course, there are a lot of barriers to uh, easily entering into that space. It's a very difficult thing to take on. And I think that as a result, uh, most photographers have kind of stayed away from it. And I think that there will be more photographers looking to uh run their business with a video platform. I think that's going to expand. And that's why for me, I always want to stay on the cutting edge of this. I, I'm not just doing this uh, in the same haphazard way that a lot of photographers who, who have been experimenting with video have been doing it. I'm trying to bring the production quality, uh, the, you know, the quality of the video itself and the quality of the content up to a level that is very high so that I'm always kind of setting the trend in this space rather than uh, following what other people are doing. Uh, but I do think this is something that's going to that's going to grow. I think we're going to see more of it, but probably we're not going to see quite as much of it as some other ways that like I think it's much easier for a photographer to put out an ebook, for example. But to put together a high quality uh, instructional video is a, a much more involved effort, effort and it costs a lot more money. So I think that's going to limit a lot of people from getting into this space. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Now, with you personally and also with Shutter Monkeys, what what's kind of on the horizon, maybe remaining of this year and going into next year? Well, so we're definitely going to try to keep up the momentum with our uh, adventure, our photo adventure videos. And so we're going to be seeing a lot more of those uh, coming up. I have, uh, as I said, a trip to the Canadian Rockies. Uh, I'll be up in the Canadian Arctic uh, to photograph polar bears. So I'm looking forward to self-filming that adventure. Uh, and there are a lot of trips that are planned for next year. But I think the, the main thing that we're looking to do with Shutter Monkeys is to start bringing a professional crew with us so that we can dramatically raise the production value and we can bring more of the experience home to the viewers. And we're also experimenting. We're beginning to do some video live events. And right now they're studio based. But what our ultimate goal is to bring that live video experience to the field so that when Zach and I and the other photographers that we're working with are traveling to exotic locations, we actually can uh, tune in live with our community, with our audience and interact with them while we're out, you know, with polar bears in the background or something exciting like that. I think that that's our real goal is to bring that outside experience inside to the viewer so that they can uh, learn from that experience and they can be inspired from what we're doing. How do you see connectivity issues playing into that? I see that being a very uh, <laughs> large technical challenge. <laughs> uh, and we're uh, thinking of some very creative and expensive solutions to get around that. That works. That works. You can always buy your way out of a situation. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All 
All right, man. Well, thanks so much. This was awesome to get your insight on everything and, and kind of hear what you're up to with Shutter Monkeys lately. Um, really exciting stuff going on. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure talking with you, David. And uh, it's a pleasure uh, being in front of your audience as well. So uh, when folks who are listening get a chance, head on over to ShutterMonkeys.com. Check out the uh, preview for the Ultimate Landscape Photography course. You will not be disappointed. Thanks a lot.